This is Food First Michigan on 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome everyone and thanks for listening. Recently, I was invited to participate in a conference sponsored by the University of Tennessee and the Tennessee Department of Health and Human Services regarding their efforts to create a Food Security Council. Special thanks to Dr. Holly Rayner from the University of Tennessee and Paige Alexander for the Tennessee Department of Health and Human Services for inviting me. As you may recall, Michigan had a Food Security Council that was created by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The idea of the FSC was hatched right here on Food First Michigan. The Food Security Council was supported by the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our staff. Anna Almanza and Dr. Dawn Opal in particular played vital roles in helping create the Food Security Council report. I can't imagine this report would have come to life without Dr. Opal's expertise in writing the report. Key recommendations have been and are being funded by the Michigan Legislature and the Executive Office that originated from our Food Security Council report. And I'm proud I could report that to our friends in Tennessee and offer them encouragement that creating their own Food Security Council could lead to significant improvement for the families they serve. We talked about several issues and items most people are reluctant to discuss. Key components of the Food Security Council report and hard to talk about issues and how they dramatically impact our work of creating a food secure state is next on this edition of Food First Michigan. back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Jerry Brisson sitting over there in our WJR studio. And Jerry, you're looking awful dapper today. You know, it was cold enough. I had to put on a few extra uh, pieces of clothing. And of course, the more I wear and the more I cover up, the better I look. (laughs) Well, that's probably why we're both on radio then. So, um, uh, Jerry, this was an extraordinary experience for me to participate in the University of Tennessee and their Department of Health and Human Services, they're uh, pulling together from, as as we did here in Michigan and other states have now, uh, people who are involved in this uh, work of creating food security, addressing uh, hunger. Um, And, you know, I, 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 I was really proud to be able to share with them that when when the current governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, visited us here in this studio, sat in this chair between us, and the idea of a food security council was hatched right here on this show. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that is one of the most um, significant things that we talk about this show. 
You know, yeah. that, that, you know, we obviously being in the right place at the right time is, is really helpful. But, but also the purpose, if we go back to why we even started the show, was to change the conversation about food security. And so candidate Whitmer at the time was somebody that we had on the show to talk about, the, you know, changing the conversation. And, man, she took that, ran with it, up the ante <laughs> and said, okay, now what are you going to do? I'm going to make a food security council and I'm going to make you the head of it. Show me what you got, big boy (laughs) (laughs) well we walked out of the studio that day and i said if you're serious about this we'll write you a concept paper and we did and she put it in her health plan uh, a month before the election and um and then about a year into her administration she did in fact create the um food security council and we were able to do some good work i think and um as i prepared for this time with the university of tennessee um, I went back, to, of course, and read our report, and then I started just checking off things that have been funded by the legislature and by the executive branch, um, and now have have that funding has breathed life into those ideas, those concepts, and now they're they're uh, they're coming, they're a part of how we do business here in Michigan. And so I'll just run through really quick some of the things that were in our report that have been funded and and now are a a part of how we do this work. So first, I would say there's MASS, which is the Michigan Agricultural Surplus System. Uh, It was a recommendation in the report. And of course, last year, we received a significant increase. And and, uh, we use this grant from the state of Michigan to buy Michigan-based products that goes into the emergency distribution from all of our seven food banks that serve all of Michigan's counties. And what I love about that program is it connects all the dots, right? It's, it's state dollars that support rural communities and family farms and, and allows them to have a market for products that they can't sell. Then... So thus, you know, bringing economic benefit to rural America, which is yeah. an awesome thing, and it needs to happen, right? Sure. But then after that, it's it's product that comes to uh, anybody needing help across the across the state that's 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 connected to the food bank network, and it's thousands of pantries that benefit from this, right? So you see a a very clear impact across. All of the counties in the in the state of Michigan who are connected to the food bank network that can have access to this product. And so it increases quality. It increases variety. Um, it does it at a low cost and with significant economic benefit. I, it's one of the one of the best examples of how government and nonprofit organizations and business can work together to create a better future. It's a great example of a public-private partnership, for sure. The other things that have come from the report that you may recall, of course, we had a pension tax on seniors uh, here, and now that's gone away, which means about $1,000 per household for seniors, uh, which, you know, is is helpful. We passed here... um, School meals for all, universal school meals for all uh, in Michigan. That's And then we passed also the earned income tax credit, and that moved that up to about 30% of what people pay. I was going to say what they lose in, in federal taxes, <laughs> what they pay in federal taxes. The investment they're making uh, yeah, in our government. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, 
Then there's the child tax credit that's being considered both at the federal level and here in, in the state. And then significantly, I think, too, which we haven't talked a lot about on this show, uh, which I'm sure we probably will in the future, is the proposed investment the governor wants to make in low-income housing. Because w- w- the one thing we do say about housing on this show is like food security and housing is like like problems 1A and 1B to solve, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and they almost go hand in hand. So uh, those are pretty significant things. I mean, the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, housing, school meals, pension tax, and then, you know, investment in, uh, in, in farmers and food banks and families all in one program. You know, one of the things I really like about our network is that when we get these sorts of wins, right, Our next question is, how did it help the people that we're serving, right? How do we know? How do we know that these things did the things that we expected to have happen? And right now, we're working on a community assessment around food security and trying to understand better what is the total impact of these benefits, particularly the ones that are directly related to food security, on people's lives. Because at the end of the day, it's not about money. It's about making a difference. So how do we do that? Is it happening? Is it happening in the way that we thought? And it's, it's going to take time. You, you can't just snap your fingers and get all those answers. But what I love about our network is that we're going to take the time. We're going to take the time. We're going to learn and we're going to do better. Even if our solutions aren't perfect, the next solution will be better. And we'll just keep getting better and better and better as this moves along. And that is what's going to get us to a food secure community or one of the things anyway. Well, with that thought in mind, you're going to really like the food for thought today. So <laughs> just hang on to that. Um, so you know, we're going to wrap up this this segment here, but I, I just want us to talk about in some parts of the show, the rest of the show, not only the some of the things that we we did and what we accomplished in our Food Security Council, but some of the hard conversations that we had that didn't lead to a recommendation and some of the conversations that we didn't have because we were unwilling to really define reality, which you and I both know is the first responsibility of leadership. And stay tuned because probably Jerry and I are not going to totally agree on some of these (laughs) conversations, and that makes for good radio. So come back and be with us. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight here to talk about the hard-to-talk-about topics that affect food security and our ability to create a food-secure Michigan. So, Jerry, these are some great things that we passed in the Food Security Council, and I think Tennessee will will follow along in our path, and, and I wish them well and hope they do better. Um, but these are the, the the items that are that were that we talked about in the first segment there is is are any of those controversial to you? <laughs> well, several, right? Uh, controversial. I, I would say that um, being stewards 
of the resources of the community is one of the big responsibility of both government and nonprofit organizations, right? It's not our money. It's not our money. We didn't create the money, and, and, and we have an obligation to spend it in the right way. So that's a pretty big central belief as a, for me as a leader in this work, that we are stewards of money that is not ours, and it belongs to the community, and it belongs to the best purpose for community. So you take a program like School Lunches for All, and, and it's, it's a emotional because you're talking about kids. And whenever you talk about kids and, kid, and hungry kids, you're going to get a reaction from people. And it's largely going to be that is unacceptable. And that's good. That, that says a lot about our values and who we are. The question is, is it spending the money in a way that is at the right level of stewardship? That's the question for me. It's not that the program or the idea is controversial. It's can we execute that program with excellence? It was one of the things that you said on one of our recent shows about what success has to be. It has to be done with excellence or you will not be successful. So my concern. I said that? You said it. Oh, wow. And and, the, and I remembered it. That's two miracles. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> right. So, so. It's, it's not that I, I oppose the idea. It's that I don't think we have a good track record of stewarding dollars for food programs in school in a way that is excellent. Now, I'm not saying this isn't a difficult issue. It's difficult. It's complicated. There's a lot involved with it, but there's an enormous amount of plate waste. There is, it, 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 there's an enormous amount of cost and when you combine the cost and the plate waste, you got to say this isn't working the way it should. Then you add when kids don't get food at all. You add snow days for which there is no plan for. You add summer for which participation is only at 12%. You start looking at the metrics that would define what success has to look like. And you say, gosh, are we spending more money on a program that's working to some degree and certainly providing help to kids, but should we be thinking about the execution of the program at this point more than just getting more money for a program that has some marginal success? So this is a theme that has, I don't know, organically risen from years of doing this show together here on WJR and also on you know, the podcast. And that principle is, let's see if we can do better before we ask for more. Right. That's right. You know, so this would, you know, this would be now we get cards, letters, you know, emails, uh, social media posts on both sides of this issue. You know, you should be asking for more. And yet, you know, we want to understand what the impact is first. So everything you say about school meals for all are, are about school meals, the program, I, I really don't disagree with. I understand that there's a lot of plate waste. My my point is this, until you own the problem and the program, then you really don't, you're not in a position to really fix it. And that's what I am happy to see here. The investment that the governor and the legislator made in school meals for all, I don't think they really had a place, they or us, to say anything about this program because they weren't willing to own it. Well, now they are. They put $160 million into this program to guarantee that every child in every public school has access to breakfast and lunch. I can't imagine how that's a bad thing. Now the work becomes, after this becomes a permanent 
you know, uh, appropriation, now I think the time for the conversation is about how do we do better? And I, I don't disagree with any of that. And I think we've proven that we have some ideas about how to make these resources go further and and have better impact with people. So I talked with a woman who runs a lot of the health clinics in schools. Um, and I said to her, what would you think if families got groceries that they could prepare lunches for their kids, you know, and then have the kids bring the lunches to school rather than getting whatever the school can serve them? And she went, Jerry, I'm telling you, the nutritional value of what those kids got would go way up. It's 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 not an unknown, right? It affects so much of our life, what we feed our, our children. And it's not just about having access to any old food. It's really looking hard at, well, then what is the cost for providing that food? And we know that the labor is a huge cost. And we know that the, the, um, the transportation of food is a huge cost. So the, the best way to reduce those costs is to give groceries to families. And then you eliminate transportation and labor cost. I mean, so that's not complicated to understand. Furthermore, we did those programs during the pandemic when schools were closed and they worked. The summer participation went from 12% average to 90% average. And all we did was say, let's give families groceries so they can feed their kids meals. The, 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 we know, we know there, that there is, one size fits all is not a truth. But if one size fits 80%, that's pretty dang good. So what's the barrier? What are the barriers to getting those kinds of changes done? And we need to understand that. And I don't want to oversimplify. You know my saying, the less you know about a problem, the easier it is to solve. So we're not going to oversimplify this. I'm just saying when you have a path, you know the path. It's clearly going to save money. It's clearly going to make kids and families happier and better served. And you can't get it done. Well, that's something to seriously look at. Yeah. Well, I, I, again, I think the principle is it's not either or, it's both and. Yeah. It's more and it's better. It's better and it's more. Now, sometimes those come in different orders, right? So here, my point is we couldn't really own the effectiveness of the school meal program if we weren't willing to invest in it first. Yeah. Yeah. Now we've invested in it. Now I think let's see what we can do to make it the best it can be and achieve that some level of excellence. That cuts down on food waste and it makes sure kids have the food that they both want and need. need. And yeah. I think that's a critically important thing uh, to a point to consider as well. Okay, let's take a break here. We, we cut this uh, off a little bit. I, I, maybe controversial was not the right word to introduce this topic. But I know you're passionate about some of these things. And next up on Food First Michigan, I'm going to ask Jerry about the state of unbridled capitalism and what role it plays in creating a food secure Michigan. Food First Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight, and uh, if you don't, if you, if you, if you are ever going to miss a segment of Food First Michigan, this is the one not to miss. <laughs> so Jerry and I have this conversation often, 
And I set him up a little bit because I threw an adjective in there. So, so let me see if I can set this up for you. Jerry, as you know and appreciate, the Food Bank Council has published uh, by way of the University of Washington and Dr. Diana Pierce, the self-sufficiency standard. And we've talked about that a lot on the show through the years. It's on our website at fbcmish.org. The self-sufficiency standard is like the Alice report that comes from United Way on steroids. Looks at about 719 different household types across a geographical part, all of, all of Michigan by county. And it uh, considers the ages of children, so when they're number young, of children, uh, the number of children, the uh, the uh, how many uh, uh, breadwinners are in the household. It's it's a great study, but here's what we've learned about that: of the top ten jobs in all of Michigan, that is by the census by, by the number of people who are yep. employed. Okay, so it's the top ten. One of those pays a self sufficiency wage, and that's nursing. So out of the top 10 jobs that employ the most people in Michigan, one of those pays a self-sufficiency wage. Now, self-sufficiency wage is a very, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, modest budget. Yeah. Right? I mean, yes. there's no pizza there. There's no Disney World. Yes. There's not any, this is just the bare necessities, so to speak. For most people... It's not how we live. No. I mean, you know, the so so we, we have to first, and I think that's a really good place to start, is that the wage there isn't talking about uh, accounting for the irresponsible decisions we might make, right? This is what it takes to live bare bones. You have to make every decision right. Yeah, and it's, and it's housing, it's utilities, it's insurance, it's taxes, it's health care, it's just the food, it's... Transportation. Yeah. It's just the basics, right? So what we know from this standard is that the cost of living has continued to rise. And certainly the last couple of years we've been through with inflation has been devastating to many, many, many people. Um, and wages have not kept pace with that cost of living. That's why we end up with people who are, are food insecure and need help because they got more month than they do money, even though they're working. So how does the economy, how does job, we, we've said for years, jobs are a huge tool in the anti-hunger toolbox. But yet we have seemingly record number of people who are coming to food banks at this time, not the pandemic time, this time, in our in the stage of our 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 history, than what we've ever had before. And it's astounding. People ask us all the time, "Man, the economy's so great. Unemployment is so low. Why are there so many people coming to y'all for food?" And I don't know that we've really answered that. So I'm going to give you the chance. <laughs> well, unbridled capitalism was how you started this, and so so you know the the bottom line in that piece of it is. How do you create jobs that pay sustainable wages, right? How do you do that? What, what are the mechanisms for, for doing that? And, of course, in, in our food security work, one of the things we believe is you have to have a prepared workforce. You have to have a workforce that can, that can do the things that command that kind of money. And 
by feeding the community well, by nourishing the community well, you are advancing the workforce so they are there and ready for whatever it's going to be. Now, there's a lot of other pieces that add to that, right? All that to say, when I, when I look at um, the, the history of basic needs, it, it really starts with um, what is the political will to do a specific thing around basic needs. It, it's never been directly connected to what is the actual need. We know a lot about what the actual need is. We know a lot about the things that cr that create situations where people are in need, right? So we know employment is one of the big ones. We know that health care is one of the big ones. We know that a loss of a breadwinner from the home is one of the big ones. But what we don't know is how many people need how much help for how long. We We don't have all those answers. But we do presuppose that the best solution for most households is that the people who are willing to go work have an opportunity to to have a job that pays enough so that they don't work 70 hours a week and still can't pay the rent. Or they work 70 hours a week and still have to worry about whether their kids have enough food. Right? That That's our responsibility. So what hmm. systems have failed? that has created this situation where there's more people in need in spite of the fact that there's a lot of available jobs. And, and you start by saying a lot of those available jobs don't pay sufficiency wages. And how many months of work are you going to do and not be able to take care of your family? It, those, are, those are intense questions that, that require, and in fact, I think, we have to be engaged in this conversation and picking at it and poking at it and jabbing at it and pulling it apart and putting it back together. We got to do that with people in the communities. We well, serve. you do the pulling apart and putting back together. I'll do the poking and jabbing. <laughs> How's that? I'm, I think that's more my gift. Yeah. So what do people want? The people we serve, what do they want? They want to be self-sufficient and independent, just like any of the rest of us. Without any doubt. And they're working every day to do it, and they have a hard job. They, it's a hard—if you had to do the things that, that they have to do to make it through every day and make sure everything gets taken care of, you would admire them. Because you'd be like, man, that's a lot. And I do. I do admire the people we serve. Honestly, there, 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 there are so many great people in the community who have more month than money that we want to do the very best we can do. And we want to hold government accountable and, and we want to hold businesses accountable and we want to be held accountable and they want to be held accountable too. We, we are more alike than we're, than we're different. You know, in fact, I have this little, this little, uh, um, oh, what is it? It's two circles. And one circle is all of the things you could have an opinion about. And the other circle is, all of the people that have opinions. <laughs> What's the intersection of those two circles? Yeah. Crazy. Right. But that's what we're really dealing I'm with. I'm asking why you have two circles. <laughs> <laughs> is it the same circle? Right. <laughs> right. But what's different about it is, and I'm going to call it the fallacy of like-mindedness. We think that if we bring enough like-minded people together, you can solve problems, right? Because you get momentum and you get energy from bringing like-minded people together. The problem is the more you drive that solution, the fewer and fewer people you have coming together until you have nobody. You're alone in your own world of all the things you can have an opinion about and all the people that have an opinion. 
So the goal in problem solving for things as big as food insecurity has to broaden those circles as big as possible. You have to understand all the opinions people could possibly have as well as all of the people that could have an opinion. And you've got to marry those two circles effectively to solve complex problems. Yeah. Okay. So where does that accountability come from for all of us? We said we want to be held accountable, but, you know, where does that, who's doing that work? Where does that come from? I mean, um, you know, there's a popular position here uh, that's going around through our work that talks about food insecurity is actually economic insecurity. Um, and, and for all the reasons that you and I have just discussed here, you know, but as following our kind of uh, unspoken rule, we spend about 20% of the time talking about the problem and about 80% of the time talking about a solution. And if the solution, part of the solution is, is accountability, then, then that's got to come from someplace. And you talk about personal integrity and all that, and I appreciate that. But, you know, if people were going to do the right thing just because it was the right thing, then I think this problem would have been solved a long time ago. I think you're right. <laughs> and, and, and it's been around since the beginning of time. It's one of the first legislated um, uh, acts in the in the Bible going way back is that the farmers have to leave the corners of their field unharvested so the gleaners can come get that get that food and feed the widows and orphans. That was a law, right? Yeah. So, so this idea has been around a long time. And so as tough as it is to hear, the beautiful thing we have if we're willing to take advantage of it is our political process. Engaged communities of interested people who are willing to look at the issues and vote their conscience based on understanding, not just on ideology. That's hard to do. Our political process is hard work. If you've never seen the movie The American President, you should watch the movie. And if you can't have that much time, just watch the last speech given on that movie that talks about the cost of our political system in terms of time and effort. It is hard work. But, but I fundamentally believe that empowering people to, to learn and vote and participate in the political process, talk to their legislators, talk to the people who are representing them, and get the things done that are going to help the most, that is the answer. And that answer is going to be fraught with different points at different times and different people taking different actions. And that's what it takes. It's evolutionary, not revolutionary. And that's really frustrating for the people who are suffering today. That's yeah. really frustrating. So how do you balance that frustration and the urgency about today's needs with a political process that takes a lot of work? Well, I'll give you one example here, and we got to take a break. But, you know, um, a few uh, an administration or, or so ago, there was a legislation passed that gave um, companies the ability to uh, not pay their federal taxes um, in it was a tax break and and for businesses and and that's cool and and the condition supposedly was those companies would take the money that they would pay paying federal taxes with and they would in turn invest it back into the company in the employees health benefits those kind of things that was really the design of the program but instead 
many companies took that money that they would have paid federal taxes with and they used it to buy outstanding shares that was out in the marketplace and drive their uh, the value of their shares up because there is a responsibility to the board of directors and to the shareholders, right? So my point would be a little accountability would be if you use that money for its intended purpose to invest into your workforce instead of your shareholders, then that would you you should not have to pay those taxes. But if you used it for a purpose other than that, what it was intended to do, then there has to be accountability. So to that end, I say we're part of the problem. Yes. Do you have a 401k? I sure do. I do as well. And I want that thing to perform really well. Right? Yeah. So for all of us who are listening here, we are we want to all be part of the solution. And one of the first steps is to understand we're also part of the problem. Yeah, this is the whole Franciscan uh, charism, right? St. Francis of Assisi lived you know, hundreds of years ago, but he came to the decision that the only way to be truly free is to live in poverty and to have nothing. Yeah. Well, that, was, that was his, I mean, that was the bottom line of integrity is if you really want integrity, you start with nothing, right? And so th- th- that's, a, that's a tough truth. But it's, again, been around a long time, and it's a very challenging way to look at integrity and responsibility. Well, existentialism up next on uh, (laughs) Food First Michigan. He's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We'll be back with other tough conversations in just a moment. Welcome back, everyone. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. We got a few minutes left here, Jerry. Not long because you know we both got kind of riled up in that last segment, <laughs> um, which is good. It's good. We, you know, and I think it's probably pretty good that our listeners understand that as close as we are, as much work as we do together, we don't always agree. Yeah, and it's like I say, the fallacy of like-mindedness, right, Doctor? If you didn't have interesting things for me to think about i wouldn't be having near as much fun let well, me just say well and 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 so the backstory here is jerry i called jerry yesterday two or three times and he finally you know in his busy life called call me back and uh and i i laid out some of the things i wanted to talk about on the show today and and uh he called me back at seven thirty this morning fired <laughs> up so I knew it was going to be a pretty interesting show today. So um, glad glad that we could talk about some of the things. I will say that in the in the process of of doing the work of the Food Security Council, there were things uh, that we we could not bring up. And 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 as you know, the, I think I've said this already today that the first responsibility of leadership is to define reality. So when we wanted to talk about some of the things like, like uh, uh, you know, uh, the lack of wages keeping up with the cost of living, when we wanted to talk about, um, you know, the, uh, the effect, highly effectiveness of, of school meals or any of those things, some of those topics were taboo. They didn't want to talk about those. They just want to talk about what was great. And you can't solve a problem if you're not willing to have those hard conversations agree so um so here we are um and i'm 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 thinking that there's one practical aspect of this that sometimes people criticize the work or the folks that we work with 
So if you're you're living in an in a unstable economic situation and you have food some food security if not a lot yet you'll spend some money on buying your kid a new pair of tennis shoes or something like that Jerry my experience is as a parent you just want that kid to be untouched by your current cir- circumstances you want that child to experience some normalness and that's why parents do it Yeah, and there's lots of good examples of caring that don't fit the opinion of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And therein lies the the again the the all the things you can have an opinion about and all the people that have an opinion and the challenge of marrying those things effectively. Well, Jerry, time for a little food for thought and thank you for your thoughts today. We have a, a lot of subscribers, listeners and folks who catch our show. So thanks to all of you for writing, sharing, and even challenging our thoughts. You all make us better. Here is the last thought I shared with our friends in Tennessee when asked, what one piece of advice would I give to those starting a food security council? And I said, quote, it does no good to steer a parked car. And it's true. A little, if you're moving, a little nudge of the wheel will get you into the correct lane. So I would say to all of us, those in Tennessee and all of us here in Michigan and beyond, don't wait. Things do not have to be perfect, but you do have to start. Same goes for all of you who are listening. We need every voice to lift up the plight of the food insecure. Share the answer is within us. And we need bodies to volunteer, funds to help move food and trucks, and professionals to do this work alongside of us. We are committed to this work, we are giving our lives to it, and we are striving to put and keep Food First, folks. Food First. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.